love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Allison Lewis-Tobes, and we're in conversation with the Reverend Dr. David Moore, who's an activist pastor at New Covenant Worship Center. He shares about his connection with our local mountains and the trees, and how they anchor his meditation practice. We'll also hear about the gift of failure, the Black community's celebration of New Year's, and David also shares what Black activists really want. David doesn't mince words, and I hope you appreciate his honesty and insight as much as Allison and I did. You're currently listening to the edited version of this episode. If you want to hear the full conversation, which includes David's journey to becoming a pastor, his reflections on our Old Spanish Days Festival, also known as Fiesta, and his thoughts on our public education system, check out our extended version in the same place you found this episode. Out of dear love for Asian Americans in our Santa Barbara community, it must be stated that we at the Human Family Podcast condemn the violent acts of racism, misogyny, and xenophobia committed by white supremacist terrorists. We believe that in the human family, all people are to be appreciated and cherished in their unique intersectional identities, including race, sex, gender, and class, and any behavior that suggests otherwise stands to be firmly corrected. When any member of our human family is targeted, especially those who have been historically marginalized, we see that as an attack on our whole community and seek to respond with support for those who need it and bold defiance towards systems that perpetuate such attacks. Without further ado, our conversation with Reverend Dr. David Moore. I'm here today with my co-host, Allison Lewis-Tobes, and the Reverend Dr. David Moore, who is an activist pastor at New Covenant Worship Center, a local Christian church that's primarily meeting online these days. First, we want to acknowledge the history of the land that we call Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Chumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Reverend Dr. Moore, can you share your pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Barbara, and what's something you love specifically about calling Santa Barbara home? David Moore, is he, him, his? We've been here for 37 plus years. It'll be 38 years next month. So all of our kids are from here, basically. And what's something that you've loved specifically about calling Santa Barbara home? I really enjoy getting up in the morning, going for a walk, and these mountains that I discovered. I say I discovered because they've been here all along, but it's taken time for me to develop a real appreciation for their proximity. Is that as far as hiking or just looking on your regular walk or...? Well, I haven't been hiking in quite some time, but just mm. looking at them is mm. is intoxicating. And then coming back and sitting in my backyard to meditate, just mm. looking at the shrubs, the various kinds of foliage that are not all indigenous to our area, but seem to thrive anyway. 
as long as I take my allergy meds, um, <laughs> I'm good. I just sit out there and listen to the various birds singing and chirping. And I just love the fresh air, especially now that it's rained. Santa Barbara's got such a unique biome. It's a chaparral. I remember this from science class. It's a chaparral and there aren't a lot of them in the US. And I personally find that possibly why it's so captivating is that you just don't see places like that. Yeah, it's lovely. What about that the mountains captivates you? I think, of course, I noticed them when we first moved here, but I think they speak to me. They speak durability, beauty, creation, and they speak the possibility of out living, surviving humanity. I know that sounds kind of morbid, but that's what they say to me. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And certainly if they don't, if humanity does continue, they will outlive me. Yeah. They were here before I got here. They'll be here when I'm gone. So that there's a, there's something in that for me. Yeah. And the trees. I don't know if I mentioned the trees. I remember when I was much younger, and if I was driving through a really pricey neighborhood down in LA, Beverly Hills, Bel Air, or Hope Ranch, Montecito, and if I would see these amazing houses, I was really impressed by them. But as time passed, the houses started to look like obstructions to the trees. And so I'm fascinated with trees. I notice them like they're brand new, the trees in front of my house. they've. It feels like they're brand new. What kind of trees are those? We have the the dominant ones are the eucalyptus trees with the really soft bark that were, you know, apparently they were used by Chumash people as they, for a lot of things like toilet paper. And kids can ride their bike on our street and crash into the tree and just get back on their bike and keep going. <laughs> That's how soft they are. And they're huge. The tree in front of our house, the branches touch the branches of the tree across the street. So there's this canopy in front of our house. And again, it's intoxicating. Sounds like you have a real appreciation for the plants that are specific to our area. Sure, they might be other places as well, but yeah, that it's easy to be abstracted from the land we live on these days. There are so many things we can be thinking about and engaging with that are not in any way related directly to the places that we live. And it sounds like that's an important part of your life. Yeah. Why do you think it took some time before you started to, as you say, notice them as opposed to the obstruction of the architecture itself? Uh, there are a number of things I think that collaborate to cause me to become aware, not the least of which is uh, my meditation practice, which brings me to where I am and to the present, but also the growing cultural awareness of the pricelessness and irreplaceability of our environment. And also, I think that when I was a young parent, I was so absorbed in the life of my kids that I don't want to call it a distraction because that was intoxicating at the time. I just, when I was a 30-year-old, 35-year-old dad, I could not imagine living life without these little lovable creatures. Now I'm glad they're gone, but because you, and I say that in a positive way, that I'm glad they're gone in the sense that as you mature, your needs change. And so I don't have the need, like 
even having grandkids is really beautiful, but I don't want to be with them every day, all day. So the seasons of life, I think, have opened me up to appreciate more around me. Yeah. You've spoken a couple of times about your meditation practice already. And coming from a, a Christian background myself, that word was not well looked upon in my upbringing. And yeah. I'm interested to hear when that became a part of your practice, if you would say that's part of your Christian practice, or do you see it outside of that? I, I think I became really earnest and began to become very consistent after being exposed to Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan monk in the Albuquerque area. And I had such high regard for him and other things that he said that uh, when he would emphasize the importance of it, I thought, well, if this is good enough for, for him, it's going to be good enough for me. And that was about 15 years ago or so. And it's just grown more and more. So as far as it being part of the Christian life, well, of course, you know, I mean, he's a Roman Catholic monk. So I could call it Christian for sure, but like you, it was not emphasized. But there are a lot of things that were not emphasized in my young adulthood as a Christian and as clergy. Some of the things that I have had to go back to, because being transplanted into a world and a worldview that is predominantly white in its orientation, Eurocentric, Western particularly, kind of pulled me away from some ways of being that are that are healthy and helpful that my forefathers, my parents passed down to me, but I didn't take seriously enough. I think the tendency to want to avoid meditative practices that put you in the moment are inherently westernized beliefs around result-driven actions. How did you start to come back to, in some ways, your roots, but in other ways, new practices? How did you start to reintroduce that into your own life? Some of it, I think, honestly, was desperation because the other stuff wasn't working. The stuff you learn in school and you go to seminars to pick up that are very Western and capitalistic in nature just didn't suit my nature, didn't fit me. So I was always embattled. I was always struggling because it seemed like other people could be successful with those things, but it wasn't working for me. I'm so glad to be a failure. <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. I, I, I think that some of the people in my own life who I respect most are people who have failed, failed out of the general population's version of what they're supposed to be. I'm interested in how you identify as an activist pastor, because it seems like activist spaces can be, I imagine, pretty draining, at least if we're not, if we're not supported well enough. And I'm interested to hear how your community plays a role in your ability to, to be an activist in community. Well, I owe a lot of my passion to my to my experience. When I moved to Santa Barbara, I started to get immersed in the white evangelical church here. And it frustrated me because I thought we were on the same page. We all talked about Jesus and that kind of thing. 
So I thought we were, and so I would even overlook some of the, you know, strange practices and beliefs because I thought, oh, we'll come together one day, we'll iron it out. But that was almost like saying, let's get Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the same room with Mitch McConnell and see if they can hash out their differences. It's just not going to happen. It's just, <laughs> but that's the way it was. That was my experience that my whole understanding of the faith is uh, not left versus right and needing compromise in the middle. For me, what we're dealing with, and I've been saying this for years to our congregation, is that it's not left, right, it's top, bottom. And I've sought to be, I'm very happy that I've identified with the bottom, first of all, as being a participant, but also an advocate over time. And so I became, I became frustrated with the fact that what I perceived in church life was a war against the left. And I wasn't even thinking in terms of being on the left. And of course, they would probably call me a leftist, but I'm a bottomist, not a lobotomist. I identify with those who are struggling to breathe with the Eric Garners of the world who can't breathe, you know, George Floyd's, with the kids in cages who are still separated from families. And I feel badly about this every day because I feel like I'm, I'm partly responsible. And so I became very disenchanted that form of Christianity. My friend, Jin S. Kim, who is, who's kind of like me in some ways, he, He's a pastor too, but he's in Minneapolis. And he posted on Facebook last uh, Saturday, he said he called Western Christianity a scam that elevates Jesus so damn much that nobody can even figure out how to follow him. And uh, yeah, I resonate with that. <sighs> and the church I grew up in, it was pretty much completely white. And this discussion would be tabled because it's political. And I get the sense that you might be in agreement with those who would say that Christianity is inherently political. And I wonder what you see as the biggest difference between yourself and a conservative white evangelical Christian, maybe. Yeah. Well, going back to what you were saying earlier about the problem with things that are political, I never heard the saying that apparently is pretty much culture-wide uh, until I was probably in my late teens. That saying is that in polite company, you don't talk about religion or politics because you, we didn't hear that in the black church. Everything was religion and politics, <laughs> Every, everything. Say, for instance, if you're going to talk about sports, how are you going to talk about Joe Lewis, Jesse Owens, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Jim Brown? How are you going to talk about that and not talk about Althea Gibson? How are you going to talk about those things and not talk about politics and religion? They were all mixed together for us. And it wasn't until later that I figured that I found out that you're not supposed to talk about them. And I, I never was able to do that dissection. So even to this day, I think probably what distinguishes it for me is that you can be a white Christian and you can bounce in and out of it. You can talk about you can talk about various topics and then skirt around and decide well maybe we'll jump into some politics or now and jump back out but we're living it daily we're living it every day so i think that's probably the biggest difference that we don't have beliefs if you will all right i found it in my exposure to the the white world of christianity that people majored in belief we don't have beliefs we have ways of being in the black church and so now our church 
here in Santa Barbara, our church is predominantly white, but it's there are a number. I, I'm guessing maybe 15 different uh, ethnic groups. We have we have Japanese, Chinese, we have Italian, Swedish, a lot of Latinx, but predominantly white. And yet, we are not a white church, even though our constituency constituency is predominantly white, because the white folks who are part of our church are actively seeking to identify with white, to disidentify with whiteness. They are not comfortable with the idea of whiteness. They're not exploiting whiteness. They want to give away the privilege that comes with whiteness. So that's what makes us really a church of those on the bottom, even though some of the, most of the folks have, you know, like, graduate degrees and good jobs and that kind of thing, but they've been able to differentiate themselves from the rat race. I wonder how much your words speak also to the larger interfaith community in Santa Barbara, because I know that in in the community that I grew up with at Temple B'nai B'rith, like the first and foremost thing that you learn is tikkun olam, which is healing the world. But, but when it is so easy to be a white person and to ignore the fact that other people's worlds aren't nearly as perfect as yours. I'm not sure if there was a question in there. Well, yeah, I think there is, because I heard it. One of my very dearest friends, I'm just so indebted to him, is Rabbi Arthur Gross Schaefer. And I remember when that art article came out, Arthur called me and he said, oh, it's a good thing you didn't put synagogues in there too, <laughs> because we fit. <laughs> yeah. I, I watched your Palm Sunday service and I've never been to church before. So this is the closest I've gotten ever. You talked about realistic hope. Even right now, how do you have that? Well, realistic hope, I think there's something deep inside that says, even when we lose, we win if we're right. There's trauma all around and people need healing. There's trauma in, in white people who hide from history as well. And it shows up in the behaviors. There's a need for one of the reasons I think that so many people need this treatment, mental health treatment, who are white, is kind of disconnected from their own stories. They're, they're, and that's, that's not to say that black people don't need it, need it because we do too. I, I talked to a friend today, and here's one of the things that happens. Just like white people cover up their own personal histories, black people do the same thing because of shame. I mean, I, I, this is not something that I'm just conjecturing. I went on a, maybe seven or eight years ago, I went around interviewing my elders at the time to find out why so few of them, black folks, handed down much of their stories to, to us who were younger than they. And what I discovered was that there were two main reasons. One was they were ashamed. They thought that we would not we would not respect them for the things that they had to deal with, the things, the, the treatment that they took. And the second reason was because not only would we not respect them, but they felt like perhaps we were living in a better world, especially not being in the Jim Crow South, because most of them were, they lived in the South during Jim Crow. My parents did, and they didn't tell stories. I've had stories that my own kids have told me of life here in Santa Barbara years after the fact. Because we have this need, it seems, to suppress our shameful experiences or to not bother somebody else with it. It feels like one of the biggest differences that I can sense from my limited perspective as a white person is between those who can abstract suffering away as something that 
just lives in the mind and stays out of the heart in a sense, stays out of the body. And those for whom all of that lives right there in the body and there's no there's no way to possibly distance yourself from it. And there's there's suffering that comes with that. And as I remember what you a remark that you made at the Black Lives Matter protest over summer, there's a joy that comes with the communal suffering. You said that you don't experience black joy if you don't if you don't have black suffering. That was something that was really powerful to me that stuck with me. And it really seems to come down to this deep sense of embodiment and know and feeling or identifying with those who suffer. And that seems to me to be one of the things that I was taught to not do in a sense by thinking of it more hierarchically, like I'm here to save them, white saviorism, right? That's how I could look at suffering and make sense of it in my body is, oh, well, that's really sad, but I'm going to do good so that I don't have to feel the pain of seeing their suffering in front of me. And it feels very different as I have had the incredible gift and privilege of learning from so many Black and Indigenous content creators on Instagram, spending time with your own community, even briefly in New Covenant Worship Center, spending time with people who live on the streets. And it takes time. I think that's one thing that to me is hard to understand when you live in your head is that we think that if you can understand something in your mind, then you get it. But it takes time for certain things to land in our body, months, years, to actually, to not just say, yeah, of course their lives matter, but this is the reality of the situation and, and go on to abstract ideas. And I think that those things don't get said when someone truly believes that, well, if people truly believed that all lives matter, if people believe that the lives of the people on the street matter, th this wouldn't be happening. <laughs> yeah. We have so many, we have so many resources in Santa Barbara and there are people who, you know, are living meal to meal. Yep. It doesn't have to be this way. And I can say, going back to your question about hope, I don't think it will always be this way. I don't know. I, I don't have a timeline or anything like that. But like Sam Cook says, a change gonna come. A change is underway. And we get pushed back, we get pushed down, we get executed, we get pepper sprayed, we get lynched, we get shot, but we keep coming back. And it's gonna happen. Someday we will overcome. And I, I just look at it in the slight systemic ways. There's so many things that I've seen that have seemed to have not changed. I'm back and forth with my own daughter over this. I said, you've never seen a charred corpse hanging from the branch of a tree like your grandfather, my dad. And she said, yeah, but I saw Philando Castile get shot in his own car. And so in some ways it seems like there's a lack of progress, but I remember, this is in my adulthood, I remember when there were no black referees in the National Basketball Association. And this was like 20 years ago, 20, 20 to 25 years ago. And I remember there was a guy in our church and we were talking basketball. And I said, have you ever noticed black refs? And he's, he had the audacity to say, maybe that's not something black people can do. Okay, but we're refing them like at the boys and girls club, boys club at that time. What's the difference? It's a job. But that's what was, that's the kind of enculturation people have of their own inherent superiority that they think, but what we keep coming back. I, the reason that black people are such great 
basketball players is because it's a field that we forced open and we're going to keep opening up other fields. I remember, you know, I mean, maybe about six years ago, remember uh, Oscar's so white. Do you remember that? The hashtag? Yes. Okay. So, so that was a big deal. And so the Academy started slowly changing incrementally changing that first year after that there were you know a lot of black films were featured but i have told people often i said i wasn't so bothered by oscars so white i'm bothered by journalism so white silicon valley so white wall street so white madison avenue so white public education so white but you you know once we call attention to it we can and talk about it we can inaugurate change and i believe that a change is going to come. I think that some white people are afraid. I think some people are afraid that black people are going to be vengeful or that indigenous people are going to be vengeful. And they're haunted by the possibility that we might treat them the way that they have treated us. When you never hear anything about black supremacy, that's not an aim. That's not a thing. That's not something people, black people aren't talking about taking over. That's a conversation that haunts white people though. And once, once we all together realize that we just want a level playing field, we just, we're, we, Colin Kaepernick just wants to play and get paid, but he doesn't want to do it if he has to leave it, if he has to check his dignity at the door. He'd rather not play if that's the price for it. So this is what's going on in the minds of activist black people and activist people, period. This is what's going on in our minds. Our minds are, we don't want superiority or supremacy. We just want equality. And you know what? We're going to get it. It's going to happen. We might pay a dear price for it, but it's going to happen. In your daughter's defense, it must be hard to be young and to not feel like it's happening fast enough. Yeah. Well, it's not happening fast enough. That's for sure. No. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, sometimes it's going in the wrong direction. Two steps forward, one step back. There are people who are just afraid that the change is going to be bad and they have all, they're haunted by their own ancestry and their own past and their own religion because Western Christianity is a scam. I'd like to hear a bit more about in, in the realm of tradition and your Christian tradition and, and spirituality. What is an event, a ritual, a tradition, a season that you or your community celebrates that is not understood by the greater Santa Barbara area? And how does that, and how does it contribute to your community and your motivation to show up in the world? Okay, so by contrast, we're just not into Independence Day, 4th of July. That when I hear people look at January 6th, 2021, and they say, this is not who we are. I say, we're better served by saying this is not who we want to be because this Republic was birthed in an outbreak of white nationalist violence. That's exactly who we are. So we're not into 70, 1776 and the 4th of July, but we go along with it sometimes. If our neighbors are having a barbecue, we might go or whatever, but we're not into it. But I'll tell you what black people have historically been into and that is December 31st and New Year's Day, and also Juneteenth. But let me go back to December 31st. All over the country, black people will, were huddled in churches and in fields and in the backs of plantations, because on January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, became legal, became law. And from that day forward, New Year's Eve 
in the black church especially has been the biggest party of the year and also a time of prayer and reflection. It's not that way as much right now, but it's still a real thing. And I had the interesting experience for 27 years, I led two congregations. I, I retired from the one in Oxnard just a month ago. But for 27 years, I led a congregation in Oxnard and the one I lead here in Santa Barbara. Well, the one in Oxnard was most mostly black and brown with just a sprinkling of more folks. And so the tradition there for New Year's Eve was huge. People put, they, they had balloons, amazing music, dancing, food, everything on New Year's Eve. So I thought, I thought when you're, let me try this in Santa Barbara. And people started talking, oh no, 10 o'clock, we got to be at home. There's too much drunk driving going on and, and all of that. Now, I'm not blaming, I'm not faulting. That's a reality. That's They were right. They were true. But they just didn't feel in their body what we feel as Black people when it comes to New Year's Eve and, and New Year's Day. Juneteenth, that's when Texans found out, Tex, uh, captives in Texas found out that, that they were free. They didn't know they were free. And, and so that's a big deal. That's another event. Both of those are Emancipation Day to us. Kind of makes me think of this idea of I can't celebrate until we can all celebrate that as long as I have someone who I, you know, hold dear, who's not able to celebrate, we can't start without them. Yeah. You know, it's for people who are in, informed, for African Americans who are informed, we don't even celebrate Abraham Lincoln. You know, he's a revered name in our country's history. Take a look at Frederick Douglass's speech. Maybe the biggest speech by a black person in this country, surpassing that even of the March on Washington until Obama's inauguration speech, maybe because it was right after slavery. And his speech to Washington, D.C. and Congress and the public there at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. And when they pulled the cover off the Lincoln Memorial and brought Frederick Douglass up to speak, he said, we're celebrating white people's president. He is your hero. He is, he's not the black people's hero. We fought to be where we are. We are our own heroes. And because he knew the story of Lincoln, he knew that Lincoln would not have, if he could have preserved the union without emancipation, he would have done it. He knew that Lincoln didn't actually believe in equality. He just wanted freedom even when he did the emancipation proclamation. He didn't believe that black people could do what white people could do, thought they were inferior. And he really wanted black people to be repatriated to Africa. So that's why Frederick Douglass said that. And so my hero is not Lincoln, it's Douglass. I really appreciate that reframing. You know, Abraham Lincoln oversaw the biggest mass execution in our country's mm -hmm. history of a native, yeah, so you know that. Our country has a long history of celebrating white people for doing the bare minimum for others. Yeah, you probably saw a little, I don't know. Do you, do you know that there was another article a few months that I wrote for The Independent? Uh, I may have the, come across it, but I'm not sure. Yeah, you it was a letter to it. the letter to the black churches of Santa Barbara. No, I didn't see that. Okay, yeah, fine, look at it. I will. Look, you know, yeah. But I talk about what you just mentioned. Truman gets credit for the integration of the armed forces when it was A. Philip Randolph who threatened a boycott of black soldiers that pushed him to the limit. Reagan gets credit for making MLK Day a holiday when he resisted that tooth and nail 
but the it's the efforts of Coretta Scott King and John Conyers in Congress, and especially Stevie Wonder, that that pulled that rabbit out of a hat. So black people keep fighting, and eventually we win. But the thing is that we don't see our wins as just our wins. We think a win for black people is a win for everybody. Thank you so much. Dr. Moore for showing up on our podcast today. And thank you so much for showing up for our community in all the ways that you have. It's an incredible gift. And well, I can say that at least I hope to be able to show up for the fight for justice as as often as possible in the spirit of, of Jesus Christ's for me, as well as common decency and seeing people as people, as one human family. So thank you, Dr. Moore. And I have asked each of our guests if they would be willing to offer us a blessing as we go into our day, if you would be willing to offer a benediction. I want to shout out to all of the non-Black artists and workers who understand the need of the hour. The legacies of people like Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan, who joined their music to the cause, to the Abraham Heschels, to the Unitarians, to all of the Jewish people who came alongside a generation ago. And in the spirit of those non-Black people, you three have come to me today, and I welcome you. Some experiences are easier to welcome than others while we in life try to welcome in the tradition of Rumi who says, let all of your experiences be seen as guests. Some guests are easier to welcome. Kenny and Allison, you are very welcome guests and I celebrate you in the house that is my heart. Thank you. It's an incredible privilege. Thank you for joining us today. In today's conversation, I really appreciated the way that Dr. Moore spoke with conviction about different expressions of Christianity, fully identifying with the group while also being very clear about perceived differences within it. Additionally, his willingness to bring us into his story and the stories of his loved ones was a gift that I won't soon forget. Next week, we'll have a conversation with Renee Golan, who is a mindfulness meditation teacher in town and a member of Congregation B'nai B'rith. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week. And if you felt like this episode was worth your time, please send it to friends or share it on social media, tagging us at Human Family Pod. And always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.